Hi, my name is Stephen Newton. And I'm Stephen Payne. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Black Ink Red Film. So in Black Ink Red Film, we're going to be taking a look at famous horror and sci-fi novels, how they eventually translated into horror and sci-fi films, and then looking at the pop culture impact and legacy they had afterwards. If you enjoy listening to podcasts that discuss books about horror and sci-fi, then this is a podcast for you. We really hope you'll join us. Look for Black Ink Red Film on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts at. What we're doing here, oh, what I'm doing here, what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy it. Now, you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. Uh, my name is Jeff, and with me here to stamp his imprint upon the cosmos is my co-host, Hoy. Hello, glad to be back. And we have a special guest on the show today. Today we have a contributing writer and editor of all kinds of awesome projects, such as the Mothership RPG, Dead Planet, Ultraviolet Grasslands, the Demon Collective, Beneath the Canals, the Ext- Extinguishing the Sun, all kind of great projects. We've got FM, uh, Fiona Maeve Geist. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Welcome. So Fiona, tell us a little bit about how you got into gaming and how you came across the Appendix N. So um, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania. I'm presently there, not that anyone can see that. Um, and there was not a lot of culture for role playing, but my child therapist, because I had trouble like developing based social skills, was like, hey, you should play this game. It's called Dungeons and Dragons. A second edition has just come out. It's very exciting. And I got the like box was Scorch, the red dragon on the front. That was the AD&D rules. So I actually know how to calculate Thacko. And I actually still think it's a useless rule. And um, <laughs> I didn't have a lot of friends or a lot of people to play D&D with. Um, so the like book lists in that, the book lists in Vampire the Masquerade, the book lists in Rifts, um, you know, a lot of my early point of contact with RPGs was reading the books, wishing I had friends, and then reading the books that they suggested I read so those books could be my friends, um, which is maybe the saddest thing I have ever said on a, a live mic. Well, I, I don't think um, uh, your experience is unique uh, in type, maybe only slightly in degree. I think there's a, a lot of us who are, uh, you know, in our heads a lot, right? So, Well, and I would also add that as a kid, one of the things that I used to do is I used to play the game of life and I would play all eight of the cars myself. Uh, and I would keep track of what happened on each car's lifeline. So like the red car, like inherited the skunk farm and the pink car had this thing happen. So I would play, yeah, I'd play a full session of all eight characters just by myself. <laughs> so you're not alone, Fiona. There's probably a way to like run a funnel where you play life first and your finishing family is just who you get to like start your game of DCC. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> In, in retrospect, do you think that was uh, very progressive of this uh, psychologist or, or kind of bizarre? Or, or what do you think? I think he played D&D in college. Like the, the group I played with the first times that I played was basically uh, their gaming group from college. That is my child therapist. Some of his friends were like lawyers and doctors and stuff where they all played together in college and like all their kids. So it was like actually a pretty weird mix in that like 
the oldest person was like 14 and like definitely did not want to do high fantasy and like wanted to be like, yo, I'm becoming lawful evil and I'm a wizard and I have read Dragonlance and Rascal Majer is like the only character I want to be like. And like I was like five. So I was like, I don't know. I have a crossbow. I'm going to eat mushrooms. I don't really know. <laughs> um, but I think it was a good suggestion. Honestly, I think like um, as much as I did get a lot of opportunities to play uh, when I was younger, I, I think that there's pretty good evidence that playing D&D like just anecdotally does make people better at problem solving and does make people develop self-confidence. Like there's a lot of the old dragons. If you look into people's like letters in being like, yo, this gave me the confidence to ask for a raise. This gave me the confidence to like try a degree, get a job, do all sorts of things. And I think that that's true is a lot of us in our heads spend a lot of time in our heads, talking ourselves down and winning in your head is a good way to be like, I can win in the real world. Right, right. Visualization and whatnot. Um, did any of the fiction sort of immediately click with you and, and sort of say, oh, I see how these things are connected in terms of the gaming and the fiction and stuff like that? Uh, I actually read one of Gary Gygax's novels. Uh, I'm going to say a blasphemy, which is it's really badly written. And um, it's kind of a ripoff of the Black <laughs> Company. It makes me amazed his children don't look like his kids because there are several sex scenes in there that made me very confused about what sex was like as a child because it was bad. He went full modest ripper. Um, <laughs> Uh, I still have that somewhere in my parents' house. I should find that and like mail it to y'all. Uh, but I, I read the Dragonlance novels. They're pretty awful, but they did. As a kid, I loved it because it's like everything is exactly what it's supposed to be. Dwarves <laughs> rough. Kendra are the most annoying thing to ever exist. Um, right. Uh, I think I read Jack Vance and H.P. Lovecraft and a little bit of Lieber. Um, like a lot of the classic fiction kind of when I was in middle school and then, you know, picked up Vampire the Masquerade and put on my black sunglasses and was like, I'm an adult now. I don't need these pulp things. I'm going to read Anne Rice and I'm going to be an awesome vampire. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. Our backgrounds are so similar because I also started when AD&D was a brand new product. And I remember when I was 14, I decided that I was too cool for Dungeons and Dragons and I was going to start playing Vampire the Masquerade. So I started doing vampire LARPing when I was 14. (laughs) Uh, I love it. That's great, but uh, um, y'all should do a, a, an appendix at book club on the book of officially licensed erotica that came out of Vampire the Masquerade. Oh, God. I heard there's a lot of very psychosexual stuff in the Ravenloft novels, too. Not that I've read those, so I, I can, cannot uh, speak to that directly. <laughs> now, actually, um, I don't know if this is uh, um, something that... Um, is putting you on the spot, but on your blog, actually, I guess it's the blog entry that sort of puts you on the map, uh, is this uh, RPGs are a brick test. One statement you make there is amend Appendix N for more interesting outcomes. What At what point did you say, oh, Appendix N is sort of like a, 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 a straight jacket? I don't know if that's the word that you would use, but maybe just not expansive enough? Yeah, that's actually a really nice uh, putting me on the spot because I mean, someone read the blog, and I'm actually, I think, starting a new one just because that one's been neglected for so long. But um I, I don't think that the old Appendix N is bad. Uh, I've written a long essay for Lamplight Quarterly about the fact I think people should read Margaret St. Clair, and it sucks that there's a weird lawsuit involving her estate that makes most of her stuff out of print. Aha, okay. I think that, like, uh, a lot of the, the work's really interesting. I love Jack Vance. Um, I was stoked to buy this copy of Inferio, which uh, I, like, paid for rush delivery on because I wanted to start reading it sooner. Um, you know, I think that, there's been innovations in fantasy and there's been innovations in science fiction and there's been innovations in dying earth and there's been innovations in sword and sorcery. And I think that breathing some more life into the appendix N is something that 
people can do rather than sticking to what's tried and true. That is, I, I love barbarians. I love, like, Jane Melba Kitties. I love people hitting each other with swords. But, like, you know, I think that there's, like, some new ideas and ways of looking at some of these tropes and characters that are, like, intrinsically interesting um, or, like, a new way of approaching it. And even rereading the stuff was one of the things I was going to do is, like, rereading Jack Vance. There's a lot of Jack Vanceian stuff that doesn't wind up in a standard game of D&D. That's true. That's true. I mean, so much of his stuff is the geniuses in the society building or just like the weird wardrobe and the weird things that they eat. And that's obviously not something that's easily gameable necessarily unless you consciously bring it to the to the table. Yeah, I agree with that a lot. You know, I really feel like I've said this on the podcast before that I feel like Dungeons and Dragons ruined fantasy fiction, you know, because prior to Dungeons and Dragons kind of codifying what we all think of as a dragon or what we all think of as an elf or what we all think of as a lich or whatever, you know, fantasy and science fiction was much more kind of free form and a lot more creative. And I think going back to these roots, but then going back to them with a contemporary perspective is a way to mine really kind of rich and fascinating material for our current, for, for our current OSR gaming. But with that in mind, let's go ahead and move on into our topic. So today we are discussing Jack Vance's Inferio. Fiona, which copy of the book are you working with? I'm working with Dell's, uh, I think, 1970 printing. So I was not born when this book came out. It's older than me. Yep, 1970 first printing. Nice. But it has a really neat uh, dime uh, novel thing I can join to get like a two hardback books. So I'm going to try and fill out. <laughs> <laughs> I do have the same copy you're reading, and it's got the J- Jeffrey Catherine Jones cover, where we've got this um, this I'm assuming naked Inferio kind of laying in the sky or something. Um, I'm not quite sure what's happening on the cover. It's erotic fan art for Michael Crichton's sphere. That's what this is. <laughs> it's what erotic fan art for the Michael Crichton for Michael Crichton's sphere. Oh. <laughs> 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 That's amazing. Now, Hoy, which edition are you working with? All right. Once again, I'm going to get kicked off the show because I'm reading the ebook uh, text on my <laughs> Kindle. and uh, But it is from the uh, correct advanced uh, integral edition. So theoretically, this is the final corrected text that he wanted people to work off of. Um, actually, it's funny you mentioned the Inferior on the covers, though, because Inferior is another one of those books that has never had a good cover, uh, as far as I can tell. Looking on, uh, if you go on ISFDB, not a single one of those covers looks good. And I think only two of them actually relate to what's going on in the book. So, Yeah, and Jeffrey Catherine Jones can usually deliver a good cover, but this one, it's a little awkward. Yeah. I'll say it's striking. Like, if you asked me, is the cover related to the book? I would say, like, I have no clue. But if you said, like, what is the cover to Inferio? I'd be like, there's a nude figure. He is lying in, on, and through a spear. Um, <laughs> it's got past parental authority somehow. All right, so now we'll we'll quickly look at our Hygaxian word of the day, and then we'll dive on into the library and start discussing the book. So our word for today is... Cognomen. Cognomen. And cognomen is an extra personal name. And this was, these were, this was really common in ancient Rome. Uh, essentially, it was kind of a formal nickname. And cognomen appears in a few different places in the text. In page 23... They talk about how in the footnotes that the lords in this world derived their cognomens from the public utilities that they had control over. Then on page 99 and 100, the word cognomen comes up because our main character, Gil, 
he uses the inferior cognomen when he decides to run for mayor. So our our Hygaxian word of the day is cognomen. It's a good one. Now, Fiona, I know you were looking around in the text to find a cool word earlier. Did you find one you wanted to share? I literally like dog-eared a corner, which I know is not how you're supposed to treat books because of this just like short sentence has like five Hygaxian words in a row. Others to become <laughs> sybarites, voluptuaries, connoisseurs, collectors, aesthetes, uh, describing the future of Earth of what five occupations exist um, for your Earthmen character classes in period. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> All right. So let's dive on into the library and start off with Fiona. What did you think of Inferio? Uh, so I really enjoyed this book, despite the fact that the back copy and the front copy promised me a space pirate. Um, and there are a lot of things in this book that there's not a lot of space piracy. There is like woodworking, there is like dying earth, <laughs> uh, social control, kind of fallouty stuff. There's the future of Earth as like a weird repository. There's conspiracies. There's a kind of Pygmalion story. But like the piracy lasts like all of 10 pages. <laughs> board of piracy and like uh 214 pages of like everything else right <laughs> but i really enjoyed it. just like i thought that this was gonna be like swashbuckling horlock style stuff and then um i think like page 50 i was like there has there has been one rocket ship and like it, it, thanks for getting into it um i don't think it's gonna be space <laughs> right. this is like uh what's that word buildings roman or something like that that's pretty much what this ended up being but like all that all prelude and then, and then, which is great. I mean, I think it was fascinating. And then the actual action is sort of compressed into the, like the last quarter, if if that. Like, uh, I think that what's really interesting about what you said about the pacing is like, this is an H.P. Lovecraft story. Like, this is the most Hall of Cthulhu Jack Vance story I've ever read. The revelation doesn't cause anyone to go insane. Women have dialogue. Um, there's no tentacles as far as I can tell. <laughs> there's a weird brain machine at the beginning. And that was like kind of really good body horror and a strong open. And then it's like, let me tell you about wood carving. Um, but, you know, I, I will be stuck on that because like I, it's, right. I love when people talk about something they're good at. But like, I don't know if Jack Vance just talked to woodworkers for a while or if he did. <laughs> like, I want to know now. You know, the story slowly reveals, like, basically the beginning of the story. Like, everything makes sense once you get to the end, and the end is just explaining the planet that Imperius from. Um, and, like, kind of is a cosmic, like, yo, you're a gigantic cosmic joke um, in its own weird way. And what's right. also interesting is I think if you wanted to interpret this piece as being pro or anti-capitalist, you could have a compelling argument for both. You could you could argue for like any political position from this. Like I I, I think <laughs> you could like give this to someone that like uh proudly uses the word SJW as a slur and someone that proudly identifies as one. I think they would both see in this book their ideas being affirmed. Like I don't know if it's because Jack Vance just is so idiosyncratic or if Jack Vance like is so particular in like his view of sex. It's like there's a welfare state, but it's a scam. There's like a decadent elite and they're like kind of wrong and they manipulate society through a conspiracy but like they're also hopeless puppets like right also literally <laughs> hopeless puppets yeah, like, <laughs> this book um, is about puppets there's an interesting strain of um california conservatism which is not necessarily um it's sort of more individualistic and and, and so i mean we know that jack vance was from northern california and oakland and was a merchant seaman for a while 
But there's this interesting strain of also, even in the midst of all this, saying that individualism taken too far is also bad and sociopathic, like the his um his two childhood friends who basically become, you know, become the space pirates. Um and that so you still have to have some sort of uh, uh, structure or social consensus, even if you're trying to push the limits and do this thing, because otherwise you're just you're completely individualistic sociopath. Um, and you know, uh, so it's 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 as you say, so many. Is he like purely idiosyncratic? Is he just the kind of person who can take the ten thousand foot view and therefore will not tell you the, what he's thinking? You know, <laughs> uh, but that that is the one like huge fascination is that like if. if there was only like the first, like, let's say 60 pages. I'd say like, this is an anti-capitalist fable. Like this is very clearly against bosses. This is very clearly about like, you know, uh, workers work and like uh, the capitalist takes from them. Uh, but like when you, when you get to like the part where he starts using like where he, yeah, just starts like making trade deals. Like there's a whole bit of like interstellar trade. And it's like, this is, and he steals it technically. Right. He like forges it. So he's like kind of a Robin Hood, but kind of a capitalist, like, <laughs> or a mercantilist, even. That's like his biggest act of piracy, though, is like bureaucratic fraud and having some really nice uh, screens that are largely made by his dad. Right. <laughs> Pure mercantilism, and he goes there, and he's uh, yeah. It's um, well, we'll take it for the gaming part, but I can see actually see a traveler influence now as opposed to D and D influence. But we'll come back to that. And I do um, really love that when he does go back to his home planet and tries to strike these trade deals, the guildmasters have no interest. And when he says yes, but I'll, I'll pay you double, and they're like, well, if you pay us double, then our workers will only work half as hard. <laughs> and I just I love how they always had like an argument for why they should keep things the way they've always been. Which, you know, also just from a personal perspective, it reminds me of like many work situations where I've been in, where I have like older coworkers who yeah. really don't want to change the ways they do things because they're used to these ways. These ways have been working for, for them for their whole lives or for their whole professional career. So they don't really want to see that change. And I feel like Jack Vance did a really kind of a nice job of kind of getting into kind of that that part of the human psyche, but also the part that no matter what you have or where you are, Many people are often looking for what 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 more they can have or what ne- what's the next thing they can achieve is like even the space lords like the the we we sense that they even want more before we find out that they're puppets. But well, that's actually like the one thing that maybe just from talking about this struck me is like this is a freelancer's complaint. Like if you make a second rate, they just incinerate it in front of you and are like pay you just for the existence of it but won't trade it and like you know an acme or a first class like you get better money but like still even the dudes that consistently make acmes are like so idiosyncratic they can't make a lot of money and it's like that's kind of a good description of like clark ashton smith or jack vance or liber or a lot of these dudes where it's like yeah they adopt nom diplomas to like crank out some stories that they don't think are very good and are like, yeah, give me a cent award for this garbage. I will keep churning it out. And then, like, <laughs> you know, they like keep their real name for like their top line work, like Inferio, which is great, and also has this like incredibly weird labor law angle that like just goes on. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was struck by the uh, odd generosity he has, even for the most sort of like theoretically reprehensible characters he has in the book. You know, even like his sociopathic childhood friends and. Even like, you know, the, uh, 
the I guess the censors. I forget what the the board of the board of the welfare board characters are like. Oh, you just you know, I'm just trying to do my job. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah. What and, was their last name? Because like uh, massacre, right? something like that. Cobol, I think. Yeah, yeah it's Cobol. Like, the Kobe, yeah. like massacred when he reveals the truth, but like he seems <laughs> to think that like he he's like this is the mob acting out, but like also well they did prop up the system for a long time, you know, like who's to say? <laughs> like it kind of. Right, right. Yeah, and I'm curious, like, what happened after? Like, they so so they 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 burn it all down, but like, what what ended up coming out of those ashes? Uh, there's like, well, a plaque on a house, but <laughs> yeah, we know about the plaque on the house, but other than the plaque on the house, <laughs> well, I think that's Jack Van saying that uh, you know there's always going to be unintended consequences, and this is the best you can hope for is a plaque on the house. So. <laughs> well, it seems like it does reshape society, right? Right. Like the end of this book, just go full spoiler on it. In Undle Square, a shrine was erected to shelter a crystal case containing the skeleton of Inferio. On the door of a nearby, narrow-fronted house with amber glass windows hung a plaque of polished black obsidian, silver characters read. In this house lived and worked the son of Amenetevok Gil, who, taking the name of Inferio for his own, did the name his father and himself great credit. Like, it, it's a, like, at a bare minimum, he's like a second Inferio that he's a progenitor of, like, the culture, but, like, what that means is still pretty vague but i think that gets into the idea that like you could project whatever politics you want onto this book and mm-hmm. like like i think ayn rand could read this book and be like yes and furio is clearly like the dude i'm talking about and at the shrug at the shrug is just a way longer book that has way less happening and a lot more greens um trades are so much cooler than woodworking uh but you know like i, I could see someone with like a randroid view being like <laughs> this is kind of that dialogic thing that she's trying to do and i could see someone that like has just finished reading Capital Volume 1 being like, no, this is totally about a Marxian, like, you know, a revolution. And I would be like, well, given the text, yeah, you're both right. Like, it's fine. <laughs> and although now, Inferior may not have trains, it does have the overtrend, which is right. uh, magnetic uh, cushions that slide silently on magnetic strips over great distances. <laughs> This is a mix of high and low because the rest of the the world is kind of very sort of almost late 19th century handicraft. I mean, it's a post-apocalyptic society in a sense. Um, But there's also moments of loveliness, like when he goes out to visit his um, friend who's now gone non-cop, trying to opt it out of the system. And then they go to that ball and the lords come down to the ball by the river. And so there's this, you know, sort of real uh, poetry there, um, which I guess Vance was always a wordsmith. So it's, it's, you know, it's interesting there. what do you think of some of the the dynamics between the characters or the depictions of the characters, especially, um, you know, the women in this book, either of you? Yeah. Of- Cause I would say, uh, so Fiona, I'm, you know, historically a lot of the appendix and authors have a pretty, sh- uh, a pretty shabby treatment of people of color, women and LGBT folks. I'm curious reading this book. How did you, f- did, did you have any thoughts about what it was like reading this book from a contemporary perspective? Okay, so I'm going to say, like, two things. One is I actually think there's a better shake for women in some of the old, um, like, appendix in books than there are in contemporary fantasy. Like, I think that, like, Bellet of the Black Coast is more skilled in kind of the Hyperbarian, and it's, like, borne out through the text. But um, with regards to Inferio, I think the thing is I can't get that mad about stock characters. Like, the, the like, goat-faced woman who's a terrible date and like the the shallow materialist woman who ends up with his childhood best friend and like the puppet lord lady because like all their names just did not register because their characters are stock types like they're not i don't think jack's 
Jack Vance is like any more or less sexist than anyone of his era in that. And that like, this doesn't strike me as like, Jack Vance really doesn't like women. It strikes me as like, Jack Vance knows that he needs certain plot beats and like there's a convenient stock type that fits really good in here. And, you know, I think they were interesting characters. Like they moved the plot. They were not depicted as like, they weren't monodimensional in the same way that his childhood friends were because those dudes like literally had no characterization other than like acquisitive. So like, uh, what's her name? There's an S. Um, Sane? Sen? Oh, uh, S- it's S-H-A-N-N-E. Shane's a complicated character. I mean, she's basically the second most complex and second most appearing character in Inferio. Because um, I think she appears roughly as much as uh, as Gil's dad. Mm-hmm. And she's decidedly not portrayed as a redeemable character, but she's not portrayed as being like, particularly malicious or evil she just is like yeah this is my social role like you do your social role i don't get why you're breaking your social role and it actually undermines the the thing that i would maybe expect in this where it's like you know after like rebuffing him and just viewing him as like you know a lesser man who's like physically present and like emotionally raw but not as like elevated and clark ashton smithy as her that like you know she breaks down and marries him and becomes like a really boring wife like she basically stays kind of repellent to the end, but there's something compelling about that. Like, where she's like, right, right. She's very much true to herself. So that's, that's pretty key. Yeah. And it's fun to see Jack Vance kind of take your traditional female love interest and kind of turn that little story on its head too, because almost always your appendix and male protagonist needs to have the kind of woman who he's going, who's either an innocent who he needs to protect or she's like a dark woman who's going to corrupt him. But there's almost always that dynamic and almost always there's kind of a, a, a big intense like love connection or sexual connection. And I like how Jack Vance kind of like dangles that carrot in front of our nose, but then like kind of yanks it away and is like kind of just decides to go in a completely different direction with it. Yeah, because there's like right, right. three different potential romance subplots. There's like the woman that he hates that becomes a thick fish packer where everyone just jokes and claims that he's left with her where like, if this was like 1990 and it was like, she's all that he'd like take her, like pig her ponytail out and take off her glasses. And suddenly like, you know, have a sort of like a right. my therapy moment or like <laughs> reforming the sort of like dumb self-serving girl that like his childhood friend ends up with, you know, or yeah, like conquering the like the icy princess. And like, he really does seem to be like, yeah, I, I think all these plots are stupid. Even, you know, maybe I probably I'd say like, if I thought that this is exactly what Jack thought about women, I'd be like, man, Jack, like, have you met more than three women in your life? Um, <laughs> right. Right. There's also w- one more uh, woman character who's actually kind of interesting, although she's only on three pages, which is the Norwegian woman he meets on Earth, Flora oh, Islander, yeah. who kind of uh, kind of opens his eyes to some aspects. You know, she's like talking about uh, how Earth is. We are concerned with the soul events, the intrinsic essences, not the sort of like the theory of the past or anything like that. Um, and so he, ha- he sort of hangs. It's kind of like someone you meet on your uh European exchange year and you get your rail pass with them for a while and then you kind of just go your separate ways and you say, oh no, we're going to stay in touch, right? And then they don't, you know. That's, so. Sure, and there's also Matron Hantelbeck who every time she turns on a light switch, uh, Gil would go on and turn it off, but <laughs> she wasn't around <laughs> for much more than that. Yeah. Um, one thing I thought was interesting though is at one point when we described Florial, uh, Gil's childhood friend and he got a little bit older, it said Florial had sported a little black leather skull cap from under which his hair curled out in a manner almost too charming for a boy. And one thing that I thought was interesting about that 
is oftentimes when femininity is projected onto a man in kind of appendix and era literature, usually it's done towards somebody who is going to end up being kind of villainous. Like when Robert E. Howard ends up talking about kind of more like effeminate men, usually they're, they're, they're villains or they're cowards or they're corrupt members of civilization. Or the wizards, which is all three. <laughs> totally, absolutely. But I like that with Florial, it's like Jack Vance just kind of throws that out and it's neither here nor there. It's just kind of part of what he looks like, but it, there's no, it doesn't feel like there's any value judgment assigned to that in the description of that yeah, character. Florial and the other reform school dude, like they're, they're like, kind of foppish, you know, they, they want nice clothes and they don't really want to work mm-hmm. right. and they kind of just see value in something like piracy. But like, as far as like queer coding villains goes, this really doesn't have it. And it almost feels like in an early draft, like that Floreal was supposed to be like a cross-dressed girl that would like go on adventures with Imperio if like the first time they went on fucking ship, you know, on page like 25, if they got out of there, I'd be like, okay, this is like some Huck Finn story, and this is going to turn to be like a cross-dressed girl. Like, <laughs> and then there's going to go, and I was like, okay, like a couple of expectations of like really tropey beats got beaten here, and I don't know if it's because he just kept revising the story and being like, no, not yet. I'll have the twist later, and at the end he was okay, I need a twist that's 200 pages long. One thing that struck me was that whole depiction of the sort of frenemy ship of him and Florial, and again i'm keeping forgetting the the third reform the the sort of instigator guy from nyan bohart nyan bohart it reminded me a lot of this actually group of friends of mine in college who actually kind of all hated each other but they all wanted each other's approval at the same time so they're always like checking in say oh what are you wearing tonight you know when we go out to the club you know that kind of thing right and had that whole vibe of like being afraid to be out of the group but also kind of hating the people that you're in with the group with and i said so i thought that was actually psychologically pretty astute you know i don't know if i was you know yeah, I think um, that group is interesting. Yeah. So I'll throw out that Jack Vance is Gary Gygax's favorite author and use that as kind of our pivoting point into the gaming side of this conversation. So knowing that Gary Gygax loved Jack Vance as much as he did and Gary Gygax recommended reading as much Jack Vance as you could, do you feel like Inferio had much impact on the early iterations of D&D in any way? I think in a theoretical D&D that maybe I've always been waiting for. Like, you know, I think in Greyhawk or Black Marsh, um, even though Black Marsh is Arneson, there's like, there's always a dying world hint, right? Because you have um, White Plume Mountain where you go inside and there's like a crash spaceship and you have, you know, a lot of sort of like indications that spacefaring existed. And, you know, there's the people that have like the long theories that like this is a dying earth and that, you know, industrial ages have passed and are buried. Um, and like, if you dropped like a controlling class creature, like the puppets and the moon, like in old D and I'd say like, you have a great campaign right there. Like, and I take almost any starting sandbox and throw that in there. And if you wanted to make the emissaries, mm-hmm. like, you know, their own sort of thing, you could always use the eld from like, uh, Cthulhu and, um, right. Misty Isles of the eld or, yeah, right, yeah. right. Or, um. What are the elves were from Hot Springs Island? If they come back, they could be something like that. Or yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like whatever um, Clark Ashton Smith like racial group you want, like you could just use them and it would it go right. up like gangsters. Right, right, and, and it's important that they be beautiful too. It can't be like mind flares. Mind flares is okay, but it's better that they be like elegant yeah, yeah. assholes. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because one of the big themes that kind of comes up a lot throughout Inferior is this idea of our 
overly long human history, like the hu- how human history didn't even begin until humans left left for the stars. Like that was the beginning of human history when we discovered space travel. And oftentimes when they try to go back and, and talk about the past or history, human history is so long that like it's almost just impossible to comprehend at this point. And I do think that that is kind of a, a theme in kind of Gygax's vision of what Greyhawk was, is that Greyhawk very much is this kind of new dark age in this kind of world far, far in the future of ancient technology. Mm-hmm. Go, go yeah. Ahead. No, no, and, and and certainly through the first, you know, throughout Gills, you know, we we see these implications of technology. Clearly, there's some sort of telephone, some sort of maglev train, but they're for all intents and purposes, their lifestyle is you know late 19th century, even mid 19th century, right? They are aware of greater glories, but they're they're not able to tap into it, um, whether it's because of their social structure or something else that we we ultimately learn. Um, so. I think that's a great starting frame, as you say, uh, Fiona, for for a game, a theoretical campaign of, um, you know, I mean, obviously with World of Greyhawk, all that other stuff is laid uh, overlaid on it to make it more obviously heroic fantasy, which this is clearly not. Um, now, also in original Dungeons and Dragons, the only alignments were law and chaos. And throughout Inferio, we're talking about working for chaos, being a chaos a chaotician is that Cha- what they were saying? Chaoticist. Chaoticist, I think. Chaoticist. Now, clearly, this isn't cosmic alignment here. This is an Elric law in chaos. This is very much just how you're behaving. Um, but do you think that this kind of uh, law versus chaos may have had any kind of impact on it? I think definitely how he saw like these cosmic alignments as like coming down into individuals, like. Because if you look at Poole's Three Lions, right, Three Hearts, Three Lions, something like that, where he gets the idea of the eternal chaos and the eternal law at first, and then also Moorcock, but, like, both of them talk about, like, basically demigods or, like, eternal forces that are raid, like, the dark and the light in, like, uh, Susan Cooper or um, uh, Nightwatch or whatever, like, sort of, like, dualistic system you want. There's, like, an endless war, but, like, this is, like, Yo, chaoticists are like basically con artists who don't want to live in society and engage in like minor to high level thievery um, or kidnapping sometimes. And then like law, laws like bad extreme is the like, you know, kind of I'm only following orders bureaucrats who do terrible things because they're just following orders. Now, since you're a one of the contributors for Mothership RPG, could you see using Mothership RPG to run an Inferior style game, or would you go with a different kind of space jumping RPG system for something like this? You know, I think the hard thing would be that in Mothership you have automatic weapons, you have space travel already, you have like a lot of stuff that makes the social system that holds together in Inferio a little bit harder to run. But if you wanted to do like a, a character origins thing, right? Like if you were the sort of person that likes the kind of uh, funnel slash story gamey thing, really, where they kind of run into each other and are like, look, you're on this planet. You're aware space travel exists. You do not have access to firearms. You do not have access to advanced technology. You're, you know, just roll everyone up on a DCC table for like what their starting class is um, and just do their statistics using the mothership system and don't assign them a class. Treat them as like a void urchin, which I played a couple of times where you just don't have any skill. Um, you just roll raw intelligence and you die a lot. Um, 
like be like, okay, get off the planet. You've got like 30 odd dudes. You've got a bricklayer, a carpenter, a turnip <laughs> farmer. You got some works. There's some like space ogre like things. You know, I, that'd be fun. I would do that. I'm running it on half the bucks. Um, I mean, in fact, Inferior and all of them, as you say, don't actually have any st- skills other than their native cultural skills, right? Because when they get when they steal the space space yacht, they can't even pilot it, right? They're just going to keep the crew alive so that they get off planet, right? Well, I don't know. Um, uh, Giel did get a C plus on his uh, woodworking. That's true. Well, <laughs> well I'm saying it, it, that's his native skill. I'm just saying his his okay, his cultural okay. skill. Um, I will say that um, once he sort of goes to the other planet and hooks up with the mercantile factor, it does become a little bit like early traveler where you're always like, Oh, we'll put some of these instruments on and you know, they're not that, that valuable here, but maybe we can sell them at this planet for a profit, take that profit, buy another cargo. Oh, well, we'll fake some bills here and try to sell, steal this other cargo out from these other people. And so that becomes very, very much like early traveler. We're just trying to make enough money to sort of like keep your ship going, mm-hmm. you know, and have enough fuel. So, and traveler also had it built into it where your characters could come from different tech levels and different societies. Cause this, the theoretical traveler universe was very decentralized. It was an, it was an empire, but because there was no faster than light um, communication, the ships themselves were the fastest method of communication so that uh, each society sort of developed on its own, but had a connection to this larger Imperial empire, a uh, space empire. And so that there's this larger human, uh, human diaspora that's implied in the whole Jack Vance stories, but that each culture is very, very specific to its planet and its circumstances. So I think Early Traveler, definitely you could draw on that. Um, that's obviously slightly out of the scope, but it's obviously OSR as you can get. Yeah, so. you can say it, it seems like it bears a lot of influence because I don't know the exact publication dates for stuff, but whether Traveler or even um, Warhammer 40k came first, but like a thought I had throughout this is like, this is living in the Imperium of Man in one of the backwaters where they're like, look, we might requisition soldiers from you, but, like, mostly we want you to make handicraft goods and live in medieval poverty so that, like, becoming a shock trooper seems valuable to you. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's not quite that, um, what you call it, um, grim dark, uh, uh, you know, the the shittiest reality. Because, as I say, you know, they they can aspire. This definitely feels like sort of, um, and this is where we talk about what they're commenting on. This kind of feels like, um, uh, uh, Warsaw Pact before it got super bad. Like you know, the workmen could sort of aspire to every two years take a take a holiday. Um, yeah, yeah. But not someplace like the Riviera. They could go to the Black Sea. They can go to the the Ukraine for their yeah. vacation. They can go to the, the local moon. They save up for like you know. So if they go there twice in their life, it's a big deal, right? A little bit of a depiction of the realities of post war because this was not that long after World War Two, right? Nineteen seventy, right? So post war Europe sort of recovering from its devastation, but also being retarded by some of its social structures that are still in place that haven't been blown away by modernity. And it also seems like in this book, if you wanted to just kind of live off of the base pay that you get from the welfare society and either not make anything or not worry too much about putting up too much output, that you still have like not a great quality of life, but you, you're, you're still going to be fed and housed. You're not going to end up homeless or starving. Unless you become a no cop, like at least it's implied in this, like the weird welfare state. But like, there's the thing with the magnets and like you being a social unit, and they adjust like how powerful the polarity of your like uh, individual filament is. And if you hit the magnet at the end, like you end up having to go to their like their 
really creepy and extremely dystopian stuff because like <laughs> the, begin- the bit in the beginning where they're like cutting open Gil's head and like putting weird conductive material on his brain <laughs> only allowing him access to certain sorts of thinking like that is some real Warhammer 40k Grimdark stuff even if like it's a bit under the surface because like yeah the society is relatively pleasant like it's not <laughs> filled with like murder the nobles come down once a year and like do some partying and sex with like (laughs) like their lives are pretty miserable and they're like barren and tacky eeries like i think that was the best social commentary touches it's like yo these people that rule you they don't even have very good taste (laughs) (laughs) right you go up there it's like overstuffed victorian you know uh (laughs) up in the eeries um also i like how they sort of um they're they're like oh we don't execute we, we just banish everybody but the the last he, they save the worst banishment for when he comes back it's like they're technically banishing him into out of their realm but there's a wall on the other side so there's literally only one inch of space so you'll just get squashed between <laughs> the wall that's outside of the kingdom and this this piston that's in our you know in our land so but we're not killing you we're just pushing you out of our you know pushing you out of our country we can just euphemistically say that you've been banished right <laughs> and then it's like but no one's actually paying attention so he just sort of climbs up on top of this wall yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. it's, really... it's like that like expected level of obedience where it's like okay now take your suicide pill and he's like but wait like, right I can... <laughs> this is not even a very right. elaborate trap like if you put this and i thought that that whole um welfare state or going out of the state and becoming a non-cup actually is kind of a cool premise for a kind of a D society because you know i feel like if you wanted to play in a game where if you wanted to be an adventurer you had to reject the social norms. and But once you do that, you are officially no longer a part of society, but you can now go forth and do all the adventuring that you want, but it's all completely at your own risk and your own peril. Yeah, I, I, I like that a lot, certainly. I think, like, weirdly, that resonates with, like, on another OSR system, Tuckamel, where, like, you start as basically not a member of society to make it easier to learn how to play the game because there's just so much social scripture. So, of course, you start as a barbarian. You don't understand these elegant court things going on around you. And gradually, after some acts of arson and murder that you're hired for because you're a barbarian and no one expects better of you, you might learn some basic social niceties and be able to pass yourself off at, like, the most menial of opium dens. Uh, dens and Tuckamel, or I'm just collapsing it with you in soon. But, like, <laughs> Uh, I think both. I think, but I think Tecumel, you're right. They actually said you start in like one of the port cities and it's, and you're definitely, because as you say, that's so rich. It's like, it's a, it's a life study to learn Tecumel, right? I mean, it was a life work to create it. Um, but in fact, the very thing that you mentioned, again, I'm going to keep on bringing my, up my Yoon Soon game. Cause again, I, di- I deliberately had my players play this Yoon Soon game. And again, it was last night. They're playing Outlanders for that very same reason so that I can, Gives me gives me time to sort of build up what Yun Suin is in my mind before I inflict it upon them. So, <laughs> but um, I like that idea though of uh, sort of um, dropouts, uh, as we say, for um, as society. And I think it's a way to get around the sort of like the sort of very narrow minded aspect of oh, that's not accurate to medieval society. Well, we know the world of Greyhawks not real medieval society. But if you insist on uh, laying this veneer on and saying that, then there has to be a drop a potential dropout culture in order for the players to even exist as let alone 
more non-traditional, you know, women adventurers, uh, elderly adventurers, I don't know, whatever, um, uh, you know, gender non-conforming, whatever it might be, there has to be an element of a dropout culture in order for, for there to even be adventurous, right? Yeah, uh, it's it's the broad, like, just, you know, I'm going to list every game I've ever played. Um, but, like, you know, in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, in the old editions, because I refuse to acknowledge the new ones, like, you have a social dropout. Like, it's like you're a charcoal <laughs> burner or a camp follower right. or, like, you're a road warden, which means that you're a quasi-legal bandit. But, like, no one starts with, like, a good job or right. a real investment in society. You start with, like, a desperation to make enough money to not live in crushing poverty. Right. <laughs> and one thing that I think that Jack Vance really excels at from a literary perspective, but also I think really works well for looking at this from a gaming perspective is how good he is at making societies and cultures unique. And one of the things that I thought was really useful in this one was, um, you know, in the, in that base society, we have his like wacky little hopping orthodoxy, um, their little religion where they need to like jump up in the air in certain patterns uh, to, to prove their faith to this random God and then when he goes to this other planet, you know, you've got all these other people there who are like walking around with the little conical hats and things like that. It, it's like little things like that that I think really effectively distinguish one culture from a, from another. And I think it's really easy to forget that when you're as, when you're dungeon mastering to really like add in a few things to make each region or planet or whatever unique. Like find something that's like just very different about the way these people see things and do things. It's it's like that the comment on um I believe it's Skyrim, but where someone said it's an ocean that's only a foot deep. Where like, you know, the entire depth of culture in Skyrim is non existent. But there's a lot of spaces you can go to. And I think <laughs> it's like someone where you like where some of this stuff seems like really simple social parody, you know, like <laughs> this stuff seems like it's just gonna be like, oh ha ha, here's a one out joke. But then like you just like drop out. Like it, it just goes deeper and deeper. Like and it doesn't even explain, like, what were those things near the huts that ate the one noble? Like, what what were right. the creatures? <laughs> mm-hmm. Everyone right. on the planet was like, oh, this is normal. That's why we didn't go to that village. Right, right. There's some real monsters in this we haven't even gotten to. And that really right, right. isn't silly. Right. That was very D&D, as fact. Early D&D. Like, oh, there's no trap here. I checked for traps. Don't, oh, don't worry. I step out. Step right to the pit. <laughs> right. And as much as I love Liber and Howard, oftentimes when they want to do other cultures, they just take an existing culture and then just like change a letter in the spelling of it. And now the Mongols or the Mingles or the Celts are now the Celts with a K. And I, I, I like that Vance gets much more creative with his other cultures. He doesn't just take an existing Earth culture and like tweak a few things. He actually takes something and, and makes it very different, which I dig. He also really he uses his cultures to sell a lot about the other one like the the planet he winds up on with the nobles i'm forgetting the name of it right now and i'm like flipping for it but you know like outside of them looking completely different from him to the point that he has to like kind of don blackface when he's going back to his planet, which was a little bit uncomfortable actually uh, i did i kind of blanked out but um you know but aided by his friend of color so it's less weird um but you know, right <laughs> we're really established as like yo the stuff that you spend your whole life working on reproductions of it are worth as much as you are paid 
and like your dad's original is in an art museum on this planet. <laughs> <laughs> the Museum of Glory. Right. Yeah, the Museum of Glory, which is an right. awesome thing. Like, right. Sounds big Soviet. Um right. <laughs> the chapel of the revolution, which will never be extinguished, you know, but like Right. (laughs) You know, he doesn't always use like five dollar words, but yeah, Temple of Glory. Like that just like you immediately know what they're going about. And like it immediately highlights how shitty the culture that Gil comes from is, but this culture is shitty in different ways. And then Earth is just like (laughs) I I love the description where he's like, Oh yeah, like some earthlings are just really boring, but like they just exist to give contrast to the fucking weirdos here. I like the um so he meets the uh, the the merchant. Uh, was this Bonar? Yeah, Bonar. Uh, who was the one who was who was trying to? Uh, no, Bonar. Uh, yeah, Bonar is the one who goes with him. But it's the, the the original merchant. And he and he goes. Oh, this is my brother. He's uh, you know unreliable. Uh, it, you know, takes risks. Uh, in 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 uh, in other words, he's perfect for this venture. Right? <laughs> you know? It's like <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I think he paints societies as you say so that you get the sense even like after one or two sentences that there's a lot of underlying depths that uh you know anyone who's traveled out of their sort of normal comfort zone for a while realizes a little bit and this is i guess why we have culture shock it's like oh even going to toronto there's so much i could live in toronto for six more years and not be able to crack the code right it's north america they speak english everything's the same right you know um it's like oh you know there's there's just our cultural assumptions um do not do not come into play necessarily, right? Um, let alone going someplace far more exotic, let's say, I don't know, Morocco, you know, Indonesia, someplace like that, exotic to us. Um, sure. I lived in New York for 16 years and I still refuse to say that I'm standing online. <laughs> I'm standing in line. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. What's, a co- what's a regular coffee mean to you? <laughs> well, also, he uses a lot of different like roots for stuff like the names on um gill's planet like is interesting or like they're a kind of weird mix and also like the mass rict as uh like is like this uh, this like strange term i don't know like it, right it, it's dutch right but it's like yeah, why are they dutch exactly <laughs> it's just random like it, it's kind of has this deep feeling of space is so big that like a couple loan words end up defining a few cultural institutions right it just like speaks <laughs> a completely different language and just views those words as referring to one thing and it's like it gives you the sense of space being massive like that is like the one thing vance does is like a lot of the like space stuff, like even Star Wars, just it feels like the plants are so arbitrary and scattered that like I can't get a sense of how big space is, other than like every plant is just totally new. And continuity and differences and gaps here just is right. like right. It, mm-hmm. yeah, it makes space so huge. Right, right. And that as you say, it's because uh, Star Wars, right, or any kind of science fiction, it's almost hard to come up with the universe like oh here's the ice planet, here's the desert planet, here's you never have that with Vance, right? It's never just the desert planet the water planet, the such and such planet, right? He's able for each new planet to say, oh, this is new and interesting and unique. Um, and it might not be geographically. It just has to do maybe with the culture and, the, and people's mores there. Um, whereas- and he does it with, with, a, with, with a real lack of effort too, it seems like, because like he doesn't over-explain things either. Like he can just kind of tell you a, f- a few small things about this region and then leave it, leave it at that. But that's enough for you to know that this area is like completely different. Mm-hmm. There's also the totally unnecessary map. Like, I just want to mention, think of Android, <laughs> yes. like, he ever looked at this map, other than, like, I really love that Dispar Island exists, because I misread it as Despair, and I thought it was, like, his one kind of, like, goofy fantasy nod, is being like, oh, and here's Despair Island, 
But yeah, that map's completely useless. I completely concur. Which maybe is why they don't have it in my version. <laughs> so we are just about out of time. Um, Fiona, before we wrap up, is there any kind of last thing you wanted to chat about that we haven't had a chance to get to yet? You know, on a book that's not in the appendix in, but that feels really influenced on this, and I've never seen that he put in conversation, this feels like an origin story for Mentats and Doom. Dune, not Doom, not the Space Marines. Dune, the one with our Titans. <laughs> right. Because, like, there's this weird way in which uh, it, which Giel is, in his own way, like, a, a very weird autodidact who just spends all his time being around people and being like, yes, I have learned your skill. Um, and maybe not as smooth as he thinks he is, <laughs> like, with his disguise falling apart when he goes back to Palma, since I just, like, saw some of these words that I should have been using this whole time <laughs> at the last second. But, like, you know, it, it really <sighs> feels like a predecessor or somewhere in the DNA to Frank Herbert, who is, like, one of the non-appendix end writers I was obsessed with. Um, but yeah, this was this was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Right. right. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I guess that brings up one point, which is that Amiante, his father, is possibly the secret hero of this whole story, right? Because he's the one who sort of lays the groundwork for Gil to to gain all this knowledge, right? By sort of being non-judgmental, but just sort of leave, leaving stuff around and sort of just, you know, sighing, sighing a little bit when things are going wrong, you know, and sort of lays the groundwork for Gil to sort of become the sort of free thinker. And he was secretly the... the right, secretly the hist- history history correspondent for the... <laughs> yeah, he was the correspondent for the Historical Institute. Yeah. I, I just love that his dad sacrifices himself by, like, in a comedy beat, like, whacking a welfare agent with a hammer, just being like, shut up. Just so, like, they don't listen to Gil. Right. Yeah. And I guess my kind of closing thought that um, is, I think Vance does a great job of kind of changing tone like that. Like how in this, when, when we actually do have our space pirate scene, it ends up going full Coen brothers. But then as soon as they land on the planet, it ends up going full Gilligan's Island. And he's like trying to take care of the howls and like <laughs> trying to get them to like go across the desert, but they don't want to carry their own luggage. Right. Uh, he, he manages to like do both of those back to back in a way that's not jarring and still seems to completely fit within the world he's created for us. Right, right. Oh, wait, I have one question before we add this. Who would yes. direct them? If you got, like, if someone get, said, like, hey, here's a couple million dollars, you get to make the official movie version of Inferio, who could actually handle doing this? Ooh. Would it be the cones? Would it be... Who's, who's got the wit to do this? Yeah, no, the cones, the Cohen brothers would make it too absurd. Yeah. Um, oh, man, I don't know. There, reader poll. Get ahead of somewhere. I <laughs> yeah, reader poll. I don't. I don't have a quick answer to that one. I don't have one. That's why I asked you. I'm, okay, here's here's an answer, um, and not now. But I think it would have been fun to have seen Paul Verhoeven take a crack at this. Sure, young Verhoeven. That might have been worth. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I would love to see kind of a space, um, a Starship Troopers slash Total Recall slash RoboCop kind of approach to this. You know, what? I I want him current. Like, have you seen his movies after he left the U.S.? I've seen, is it The Black Book? Yeah, like, that movie is both, like, high concept and kind of high gore at the same time. And I think... It's stunning. This is actually a story where Verhoeven could do all of the beats he's done well through his entire career. If he ever stops writing manuscripts about, like, the historical Jesus as a communist figure, like, maybe... I love how weird he is. <laughs> All right, so we're going to have to officially wrap up now. Fiona, thank you so much. You have been a blast to have on the show. Thank you, Fiona. It's been great meeting you. Have a great time.
<laughs> All right. So our next two episodes, episode 45, will be on A. Merritt's The Moon Pool. And episode 46 will be on Stanley G. Stanley G. Weinbaum's A Martian Odyssey. Hoy, how can people get a hold of us? Uh, you can always email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at appendix underscore N. Uh, we're also on MeWe. Uh, G Plus is sadly going away. So look for us also at, uh, us also on Facebook. And we now have a Patreon. That's a Patreon slash Appendix N Book Club. And I would like to quickly thank a few of our patrons. Uh, Noah Green, Kurt Hockenberry, Vasily Kalaman, Eric Johnson, Ray Otis, and Beckett Warren. Thank you for your support. Thank you all. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.